Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host and person who keeps this show going, Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos, how's it going? Hello, Sean. You're far too kind. You know this is a team activity. And uh, some days one of us is more sleepy than the other. This is true. This is true. (laughs) Uh, Or focused or less uh, sober than the other. And, and today I, I was uh, I had extra time to uh, let's say argue though that's a strong word with Mike Shea so uh, I'm going to try to to be non-argumentative about the DCs of ropes and such topics and uh, sounds good stay you know teamwork oriented here you know you're living your best life if you can take your holidays and uh, <laughs> just to argue with with Sly Frillerish Mike Shea it's true it is it is Labor Day and I've done some labor. Yes, some hard, <laughs> some hard time in the Mike Shea argument minds. Good, indeed, good indeed. stuff. Good stuff. Well, we're going to jump right into the news then. With, would you believe? <laughs> Do you it, really want to jump right into the news? <laughs> it, it is, it is not D and D branded sandwich meat, but no. it is a Wizards of the Coast branded UK football team. Uh, ICV2 is reporting that Wizards of the Coast will sponsor the Leighton Orient FC uh, football soccer team, a lower league East London soccer team. Uh, They will wear Magic the Gathering logos on their training gear, which could lead to uh, appearance uh, on their commercialized team sports wear. And yeah, so why not? I mean, it's one of those things that you're just like, what happened to cause this like what's the okay you know whatever it, it's not a prominent team it's right you know a lower league so it's unclear why and it's like maybe eventually you could get sports gear i don't know but you know there it is and yeah. maybe it's just one of those you know like this is a, a wonderful go-getter team and yeah. wizards found a reason to i don't know well they do have a branch <laughs> in in london so maybe there's a connection between that, the London branch, you know, some of the employees there maybe, and and, uh, and the, the squad. Uh, yeah. All I know is until we get the Seattle Seahawks of the NFL changing their name <laughs> to the Seattle Beholders, I, I don't want to hear anything else. I mean, we do have the Krakens, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, uh, Seattle does have some good names there and, and some obvious partnerships that could happen down the road. So we'll see. Yep. We're we're holding our breath, but not continually. <laughs> uh, That's okay. Yeah. Uh, next news: the DM's challenge is down to the three finalists. Um, so we're at week six, and stage two is now over. The three finalists are Brad Thompson, Andrew Bashinsky, and Sergio Solizano. Uh, yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Take it away. There's a. There was a video on this, uh, which gave a little more info on the process. You know, we, we do have one Wizards of the Cast staff member who is there, Wizards of the Coast staff member, uh, who is there, Amanda Hammond. Um, she has been reviewing along with Jennifer Kretschmer and B. Dave Walters, two excellent folks. Uh, so they're the three judges who review the contestants' works. And one thing that's good is in this era of the Internet, it's really easy to know people. You know, and, and like, I think a lot of us, a number of us, if we look at the list of people who were in this competition, you recognize some names. So they're doing it in a blind way. They don't see the name of the person when they review a submission. So I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so now we've reached the end and we have these three finalists. And apparently what they're going to do is they're going to run an encounter for the three judges, plus Christina Ariel and Matthew Lillard. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and then to further do the twist, you don't run your encounter. You run an encounter one of the other finalists created. Okay. I kind of like that part. I, you know, it's one of those things where like, Christine Ariel is awesome. Matthew Lillard's, Lillard's awesome. I don't know to what level they design encounters all the time or judge all the time or play under lots of different judges or anything mm -hmm. else that would really help you assess these contestants. Yeah. But okay. Like I, I still kind of feel if I look at this competition, I still feel like there should be Jeremy Crawford, Chris Perkins, Dan Dillon, right? Like, right. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it is what it is. It for me, it's like it's like awards. It's like any other things where there are judges involved. It, it's it's great, and it's also not great. And you know, take take out of it what you can get because um, we've all known awards shows of any stripe, whether it's role playing games mm -hmm. or movies or books or whatever, where a less than stellar nominee got an award for something that they shouldn't and in some cases that the obvious best thing did win so it's who knows but yeah you know publicity wise you know congratulations to the three finalists uh i hope this is something that continues and yeah i agree uh, with that yeah and i do hope that they release more info from the people who um have from all the contestants, you know, because I think mm -hmm. one of the things that I liked about Paizo's RPG superstar back when it was going on and, and I would pay attention to it, that it would showcase work mm -hmm. and then the person's name next to it. And there are some right. names that I still remember from having seen their submissions and thinking, oh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and I, I, I'd like that to be more of this so that those folks could kind of proudly go, I did that, you know, and, and right. It's a little easy to, I think the way this competition's happened, it's a little easy to forget who's been in it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you don't know what they did. So you can't really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in any creative process, there's the work and then there's the creator. And, you know, you, you like to know the creator, whether it's music or art or writing. Uh, but you also want to focus on the work. And, you know, we, we live in a society, we live in a world where sometimes, just like with awards, right, sometimes it's more about the creator than about the work itself. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think you, like me, want to see the actual work yeah. and, and uh, what, you know, what's in it, because that's what we're here for. Yeah. And, and, and I think from the entertainment standpoint, the marketing standpoint, I'm, I'm down with that, too. Like, I mean, I would dream of running this table of you know jennifer mm -hmm. kretschmer b dave walters christine ariel matthew lillard amanda hammond beyond the nervousness that you would have right. running this table i mean what an amazing table to run right. i would certainly love that and i would love to see this um yeah i still think i, I know i've told you this idea of mine but i still want to see a show that someone would produce and anyone can just take this idea and steal it because i just want to see it which would take the same encounter and have different tables go through it 
so so you see how differently the players handle it and how differently the dm plays it but really find a way you know the way that well-produced shows do to really get into that right and break right. down and analyze those differences i think that'd be fascinating it would it would and with cool cool players like this would be even better yeah for sure acquisitions incorporated has returned to pax west and returned to icewind dale so even though PAX West has concluded or concludes today, maybe yeah. uh, Acquisitions Incorporated was live once again on the big stage. Uh, there's a YouTube video up now if you would like to watch it. Uh, it was a long time ago, it feels like, that Jeremy Crawford took the heroes from Waterdeep to Icewind Dale uh, with a few detours. But now they are back to that storyline. Uh, so in the last two years, there's been the Ravnica Avernus angle. Uh, Drawn Enterprises has taken over Acquisitions Incorporated, and the heroes are now in Rebels End in, in the prison. Uh, do you, I didn't watch it, but do you want to give you? Yeah, thoughts? sure. It, it was it was fun. Uh, so you know, the first thing as we talked about last week was Kate Welch being DM instead of Jeremy Crawford. Uh, she did say that Jeremy would be back. It's not a permanent change, but it was cool to see uh, Kate there. She did a great job. Um, and this was all about cloning and the bad choices that Omen has made in the past. Um, it was reinforced. This kind of came out on the C team, but uh, Omen is a clone by choice, um, which was fun to see sort of Evelyn ask questions since they yeah. have a romantic kind of thing. Right. Like, Wait, what? You're a clone? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then everybody else sort of wondering, are we clones? And, and the answer kind of being like, no, yes. You know, just intermittently from various NPCs. Of, of, of and, course not. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we also learned that Omen has a daughter. So we, we've got a new cast member, which is Certainty Dran. Uh, quarter Asimar, quarter elf, half human, business savvy, paranormal investigator, played by Jasmine Bular. Uh, so that was great. Uh, it was fun to see her join the cast. And they went through all this clone facility. That's how the prison has ended up being this giant clone facility mm -hmm. um, run by Drawn Enterprises. And then they seemed to be making their escape at the end. But then there was some sort of horrible metal on metal sound, which was not fully revealed as to what was going on. So we'll see whether they, they actually did escape Icewind Dale or they portal jumped somewhere else. We'll see what happens. Yeah, uh, you know, Feywild might be a possible. That's thing true because guess, so. there may be a book coming out. I've heard about <laughs> such a place. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see now that well the pandemic is far from over, of course. But you know, now that there are in person conventions happening, maybe we'll see more of uh, more of the main AI storyline. Yeah. Uh, the virtual tabletop space is heating up with a $2.75 million venture capital investment for a brand called Roll. Um, they did a Kickstarter in June of 2020 that raised just over $100,000. And now they have raised an additional $2.75 million, which is quite a bit more than $107,000. Yeah, when I saw, uh, I think I, I, re I remember seeing this kickstart and thinking 107,000, you can't do much with that. No. And so now it's like 2.75 million. And, and what's interesting to me about this is, you know, we know certain brands really well. And mm -hmm. then there's some others that are sort of up and coming or they're older and are trying to stay prominent, right? Yeah. But when you when you realize that one of these new ones that only raised 100,000 on Kickstarter can actually make a compelling enough case 
for venture capital firms to give 2.75 million, well, yeah. maybe some larger, you know, some folks looking at this space see what it can provide, right? The right. case is, is more solid. And for anyone who doesn't really understand venture capital, at least the venture capital folks that I've been involved with, they don't invest unless there is at least a decent chance that they are going to make not 5%, not 10%, not 20%. They're looking to make like 5% plus on their investment. So you know, unless this is just somebody who happens to know somebody who has a spare 2.75 million to, to throw around no, it's, this it's business actual, plan. Yeah. Yeah. It's actual firms. Cause they actually did another round in between this. That was sort of like angel investors as they call mm -hmm. it. And that tends to right. be your friends and you know, someone yeah. else that you know more closely, this was actual legit, you know, we're going to yeah. own a percentage of your company in exchange for all this. Yep. So the business plan must've come through uh, with, with, with something promising. And, you know, we know that the game of D&D &D and all role-playing games are at an all-time high in terms of attention and in terms of money being handed over to play uh, with subscription models, with supplements, with maps, with all of that stuff that can be used on the virtual tabletop. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if we ever get a clear-cut industry leader uh, and having you know three million dollars thrown your way is a start uh on making that happen so we'll we'll see yeah. what what the future of role is and I, you know one of the things that's interesting if you look at things like streaming there have been a couple of platforms that have come up to try to challenge with really big money to try to do so and then they fail to do it right mm -hmm. and and part of what they do with all this giant money is to sort of sway people to be exclusive to their platform and it'll be interesting to see if, if we see that start happening right do you start taking the the known entities in this space and offer them money and positions and shows to be on your virtual tabletop platform does it get to that level right is there is there that yeah. level of money and audience i'm not right. sure there is but there could be i mean we could easily see someone who would want to buy we all know that a lot of folks know critical role anything they do if you want a piece of that you pay big money mm -hmm. because sure. they're such an obvious eyeball getter right they have such hard metrics that they can do mm -hmm. so you know if someone wanted them to be on a particular platform that's going to require big big money but then there are levels below that that you could see happening yeah. and and the other big question is you know you can play many different kinds of role-playing games on a virtual tabletop, obviously, but the obvious industry leader is, is D and D. And if you want to make money, you want to be able to sell the supplements on your platform. So I can just go buy the acquisitions incorporated, you know, hardcover book adventure on the virtual tabletop and it's all set up for me. Uh, getting that getting the ability to do that takes money yeah and so true. that you know that's another way to to look at things yeah i looked at the roll 20 integration of um van richten's and that was impressive like there was good work done there right and, and things that were non-obvious had been done to make it a better experience yeah. uh and that's that yeah like you're saying that takes money to then make that money back mm -hmm. so We'll keep an eye on that and all the other virtual tabletop news as, as we go forward. Speaking of virtual tabletops, Roll20 has provided a guide for first-time GMs on Roll20. 
uh, just in time for Gen Con, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Uh, the Roll20 created a guide for new Roll20 players. Um, they, now they have one for GMs, teaching the basics of creating the game, doing a landing page, you know, working with all the tools that, that Roll20 has. And this was done in collaboration with Gen Con, since Gen Con will have an online component uh, this year and probably for many years going forward. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, when you talk about leaders, Roll20's name is going to always come up. Um, we've seen uh, being involved with Baldwin Games that it's by far the platform most people seem to want to sign up for mm -hmm. and seem to want to run play uh, games in as DMs. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting because it's not like DMs when you ask them or players say, oh, it's the easiest, right? In fact, it, they can say it, it takes some work, but it's it sort of the most common and 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 mm. people who do get to know it well can do really cool things in it right so it's yeah. always interesting to see yeah i took about 24 hours to learn it once the pandemic started so i could start running games at least halfway efficiently on it so it there is a learning curve but once you get past you know that eight to ten hour mark of just constant sitting down and and you using it yeah it it starts to make a little bit more sense yeah, and I think that's the idea behind these guides, right? It's just show right. if you if you take a few steps, you're going to feel grounded enough that then you can take on the the harder mm -hmm. stuff. And and yeah, and if, like I for the Dune live stream that I was on, we used Roll Twenty, and that was one where I thought like, wow, this game like we're largely not using, you know, we're not using minis. Like, what's the point right. of it? But but actually, what was sort of interesting is that in the system, the way that either as you know, a Star Trek or right. with Dune. You have this sort of way you say, I'm using this ability plus this, and I'm doing it for this reason. And so there are a couple of different factors that go into how many dice you have. Mm -hmm. And this made it just really easy and logical to go through that thought chain right. and speak to your DM about it. And, and so it actually was surprisingly helpful. Yeah. And I, when I first, you know, we, we got it free, right? And so I was like, okay, you know, we're doing this to help promote. I don't know that this is going to be helpful. And, and then at the end of it, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool and useful. Yeah, it, it, there are definitely times when even when you're running at the table, people have roll 20 up to to handle yeah. character interactions and stuff, yeah, you know, rules interaction. So it, it is it is interesting. Uh, on the DMs Guild, we have Joe Rasso talking about DMs Guild pricing. Uh, Joe is the creator behind supplements like the Great Dale Campaign Guide, Terror Beneath the Frozen Gate, and Dunwood Demons druids and danger which we reviewed at one point here on the show uh, so in the last three years once per year joe's taken a look at the dm skills pricing focusing on uh, those in the most popular dm's guide titles product ribbon um, so he points out you know each year he's pointed out a few things uh, he points out that most products end in 99 cents or 0.95 cents uh, for some reason, people are more likely to buy uh, something that has that at the end. Uh, you still yeah. round down, right? In terms exactly. of your bank account drainage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and in previous years, we saw very few products that were higher than $14.95. But this has changed in the last year. Um, and more products are exceeding a cost of $0.20 cents per page. Whereas in the past, we were seeing uh, much, either less or much less than that. Yeah. It's all good news, and we could easily have talked about uh, Kickstarters, right? Because we just had the, well, we'll mention it later, but Avatar Legends, and, and you know, there have been so many 
Kickstarters recently that have crossed the million dollar mark. And, mm -hmm. and so we're just seeing overall, it's a larger audience, the audience, uh, it's hard to say whether the audience has changed or just the newer audience is willing to pay more, but we do see prices go up, right? And, and, and that value is still seen for a higher price product, which is good. Yep. So uh, you can find Joe's blog at theschemingdm.wordpress.com. And the DMs Guild has also updated their guidelines for print on demand. We talked about this last week and maybe even the week before how those guidelines were changing. And now uh, they've loosened up on those requirements. And I will let Teos tell you all about that. Yeah, so the there was a minimum uh, page count of 100 pages, which is pretty rough. That is gone, which is good because page count doesn't indicate anything <laughs> in terms of value. Right. Um, but if it's already published, so you still have these standards of if it's already published, it must be platinum or higher. Mm -hmm. If it's upcoming, then they'll consider it if you have at least one previous gold title. Still no word on what that means if you were a collaborator on something, mm -hmm. like you might have done some really tiny bit. Maybe you were even an artist on it. Does that count? Hard to say. Right. Um, but it's something they review, so I guess that's where it would happen. Uh, you must still use an approved designer. There are four currently, uh, layout designer that is. But there is now a form to apply as an approved layout designer. No idea what that process is, but you can at least say, hey, uh, so if you're listening to this and you know layout, I would say jump in there because these folks are going to be probably have a fair amount of work on them. Plus, it's great advertising. And there are four mm -hmm. layout designers there. Only half of them, two of them have a portfolio page. So if you're on that list and you don't have a portfolio, portfolio page, you should. Right. And then anybody else, hey, look, it's like free advertising that you know how to do. Right. You know, of course, drive through, but also DMs Guild and uh, and you can link to your portfolio page. So jump on this layout, people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, high level D&D, &D, something that we have not discussed in a while, but might be in the offing. But DM David and Alan Patrick have already discussed it for us um, in a series <laughs> of blog posts. Uh, DM David covers some of the challenges of high level play, and he also shares advice provided by Alan Patrick former Adventures League administrator and author who has run hundreds of high-level tables. He's former? Uh, current. Current? I, I can't remember. I mean, maybe you know something I don't. I don't, I don't even know what I know. Congratulations on being fired, Alan. <laughs> you heard it here. No, I think he's still an admin. Okay, cool. Uh, so Tier 4 is the end of the player characters careers they go on to hot huge adventures but then circle back to their beginnings and bring back nostalgia and emotional residence resonance not residence sure. you know uh this also lets pcs and players see the growth and achievements so at the end of most stories especially huge long tv shows or series of books there's always that return to where you started to just remind yourself of why why you took this journey to begin with so that's that's the sort of advice that they're covering I, here i think this is great advice i've been chopping away periodically at a blog that's a little bit about this subject of of how if you look at the published adventures they almost never come back to where they started mm -hmm. right. and and it's a little strange because we're supposed to actually care about where we started but yep. we quickly discard it, right? So it's, it's, I think this is really good advice that one thing that tier four, you imagine like, well, you've got to go to the planes, but actually sometimes what really, really has that resonance is going back to your starting place, you know, whatever right. that campaign began with. Yeah. 
uh, epic situations that let, let epic heroes shine. So rivers of lava for an erupting volcano. Uh, you want this thing that would just totally annihilate a tier one party. Uh, tier four is just your your normal situation, uh, but things you have to account for. Uh, at high level, even these sorts of great epic things can fail to impress. Uh, so sometimes going back to smaller, more personal stakes can actually add bigger drama than than these uh, epic yeah. environs. Yeah, and, and knowing when to do which is 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 I think a key skill. And, yeah. and the idea, don't just do one, right? Don't just do nothing but erupting volcanoes is, right. is good advice. Yep. Uh, they note that at tier four, monsters can be a little disappointing. Uh, the hit points gained by player characters outpaces the damage that monsters can inflict. Uh, uh, Alan raises damage so it matches the way the game it feels at lower levels deadly, mm -hmm. right? When you can get killed by just one critical hit. At right. low levels, you want to make that so that can happen at high levels as well, or at least it has the possibility of happening because the characters can, with a snap of their finger, bring their whole party back to life. Right. So yeah. DM yeah. David talked about a recent game where two characters were disintegrated and they were both up within a round, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. It just, that's, that's high level play. Yeah. And uh, DM David also notes that high damage does penalize support characters making concentration checks. I thought that was an interesting comment that, you know, you have this like damage, you escalate the damage so much to threaten a character, but yet we don't think about that, that impact on your concentration checks, which is true because that those DCs just become impossible. And I had not considered that. So I'm yeah. going to think on that. I would I would come back with yes, but you also have seventy other spells that you can cast. So that's or even just, just the same thing again. Exactly, that's time. just yeah. part of the, you know, part of the action. Um, David and Alan do have several recommendations. Uh, give the characters more to do at once, and this is of course great advice. They have to attack the monster plus do this task over here. I mean, that's good at most yeah. tiers, but. Yeah tier four especially you want to give them maybe even mo more choices than that uh never make it they can just focus their fire on one thing because that one thing will not last long uh limit resting by making it erasing its time uh, and that goes both within a session and between sessions yeah. um, if you're not having your level 20 characters go four sessions uh and without giving them a rest, you're not running it right. They, they should not be resting at all. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, hard. If, yep. if you have them full up, it's just so hard to challenge. Yep. Uh, give preferred targets the ma maximum number of hit points that you can. So everything doesn't die in one round. It at least takes two rounds. Uh, have a warm-up act, a foe before the actual foe. So the players don't just unload on the main uh, main enemy right from the start. There's also recommendations on how to handle pacing and the demands of high-level play, like uh, seek out uncomplicated foes to fill groups of foes so you can focus on the complex boss and all the other elements, and you don't have to worry about the spell list of 27 different uh, monsters. It's just right. one monster. Um, favor traps and hazards that trigger on an initiative count uh, because they're always going to be going. Yeah. You know, 
the the subscription model for traps, if you will. <laughs> I uh, like that. Yeah. Uh, add legendary and layer actions to your initiative tracker. So, yeah, that's really important. Yep. Super important. And then use average damage. So you're not rolling 2076 every time a monster attacks. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yep. So any anything else on that? It was a, it's a great two part series. Highly recommended. I think even if you you like you were saying, if you roll, if you're running lower level encounters, this is still good advice here yep. to be found. So good stuff. Yep. After about fifth level, all of it's all high level play. It's just a little more high level play at, at tier four. It's true. It's true. And and all you'd have to do is run a game at a convention to see that. Just mm -hmm. oh yeah, this this encounter does not present anything to you folks. And and yep. that's my I mean my biggest advice on high level play is it needs to be fun regardless of the challenge level. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what D&D always should do at every single tier is it just needs to be a great story, engaging situations, fun stakes. And they may walk all over it and just shred your your monsters and that's fine if the rest of it works. If the rest of it doesn't work, then it's all very ho-hum, right? Yeah. The reality is a lot of times when I run convention games, the players love absolutely shredding everything I put before them. That's not the problem. They're having a great time with that. But if the story is lackluster or doesn't make sense or fails to be engaging in some way, there's not much to do, then it's boring and, and it's like a miniatures, a bad miniatures game, right? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. We will be getting a TV show of Blades in the Dark. What? Uh, by John Harper. Yes, John Harper created the RPG and it has been optioned by uh, UK's Warp Films. You can read all of that at www.screendaily.com. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we'll I mean, we'll it's see more and more of this. I think. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a game that all of my indie game designer friends play. Talk about uh, right. so seeing this sort of you know I don't want to denigrate the game. It's not D and D. That's all right. So mm -hmm. we're seeing all this D and D news, books, right. movies, having these other role playing games getting this attention is is great news, and this is a good one to to focus on. It's, it won't be surprising if this happens more, right? Because you think of a lot of these role playing games that are not based on a licensed property, right? They're their own mm -hmm. concept. They have right. really neat ideas. Right. And so you could see how someone could go, you know, you've done all the work for me that I would normally do to create a compelling world, yeah. compelling NPCs and even stories. It's all here. And I have an audience. Hey, yep. let's yeah. do this, right? Yeah. Why not? Uh, and speaking of let's do this, uh, Avatar Legends role playing game ended at $9.5 million in over 80,000 backers, which is a new role-playing game record. As Teos mentioned earlier, we're getting more and more games, uh, you know, role-playing games that are breaking the million-dollar mark. Well, we almost had a $10 million role-playing game Kickstarter that's not even D&D, &D, uh, yeah. based, based on the, uh, the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, rule set. So it wasn't even a unique game it was one that was you know co-opting an already yeah. in intact rule set so congratulations to magpie games and you know good luck good luck now creating a game that 
is uh, going to capture the imagination of 81,567 backers. <laughs> yeah. So any other news to throw out to us? Uh, you know, just a quick mention that uh, uh, there is a Kickstarter out there, That Feeling When Oracle Deck uh, by Lisa Penrose, and that's worth mm. checking out if you want to see a very cool looking cards, uh, a sort of Tarot style Oracle Deck. Check that out. That's on Kickstarter now. All right. Excellent. Now with the news safely put to bed, we will start strong again. We will continue our discussion on intro adventures for D&D, looking at the opening sections of the hardcover adventures published by Wizards of the Coast. We'll look at how good they might be for new DMs and new players, and then give some tips on how to make them work for you, even if you're a new DM or even if you are running for new players. Uh, last week, we looked at the beginnings of Horde of the Dragon Queen and Princes of the Apocalypse, meaning this week we get to look at Out of the Abyss and Curse of Strahd. Whew. Shall we do this yeah, thing? Stuff. All right. Let's do this. This is epic, epic material here. Yep. So let's start with Out of the Abyss, which was the third hardcover that had a, an actual opening. Because, right, right. because the uh, rise of Tiamat was for high level characters. Yeah. So when you pick up out of the abyss and like, okay, I'm going to run this. What, what are you getting into? What you're <laughs> getting into is a really cool idea uh, that had a lot of good parts in place, but it was a heap of work to sort out. And it takes a lot of, thinking a lot of energy and a lot of planning to work with a random group of players or even a group of players who you might know right uh it can be worked out to become a great prison breaker heist story but if you're going to run it that way you want to step back and look at what makes those prison break heist sorts of stories work because they are a very specific kind of story. And if you get off track or if you start presenting to players things that the players aren't too keen on, it can go really wrong really quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. And and what I tend to think about this scene as or this in the beginning, this introduction piece, which is all about the characters starting as prisoners. I have a couple of thoughts, but the main thought is something that I had as an experience when we were writing one of our early Ashes of Athos adventures, and we wanted everybody to get onto a particular caravan. And this involved posing as slaves, because back in this time, just as the most recent out of the abyss, the idea of being slaves wasn't uh, the same thing it is today. It was, it was seen in a different light. And now we'd go back and make different choices. But when we were writing that adventure for Ashes of Athos, uh, the idea of posing as being prisoners, captives, whatever, it was, um, you know, how to write that scene. What we did is we provided a bunch of here's what you can't do. Here's what won't get you onto this caravan. And then what would happen is players would come up with ideas. The DMs would cross reference with what we said no to and then try to figure out whether they should say no to that, which is totally the wrong type of play you want. Right. You want to actually be saying yes and then create a neat scene about it to see if they pull it off. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of like that. 
in that this scene, we get sort of all this information, maybe too much information, mm -hmm. but then we're not sure, can they break out and how do I adjudicate that? It, it almost doesn't tell you what to do about that. Mm -hmm. And then it provides you three ways they can break out. But right. it's not clear whether everything else should get a no or how to work with it. And it's just the kind of thing that I think creates tough play on both sides. Like a player might go, okay, it says that I started with a piece of metal. Mm -hmm. Can I do the following? And, cool. and, and, you know, you just don't even know, can I escape now? Like, I kind of want an indication from the adventure. Is this a time when I can, when I can escape? I don't even know. Like right. if I open the door, will I round the corner and face a whole bunch of guards? It's just, there's almost, you know, it's yeah. that kind of situation that's very difficult for players yeah. to, to feel empowered and they don't feel cinematic about it. Right. They, yeah. They feel constrained and maybe uh, frustrated. Right. Yeah. Anytime you start with the characters as prisoners and they don't have any equipment or they have very limited equipment, that's hard immediately for new players unless you present it in the right way. Because during character creation, you're probably saying, hey, you're proficient with long swords and you you can cast these spells and you mm -hmm. go through the list of everything they can do. And then you instantly turn around and say, oh, by the way, you can't do any of that yeah. be because of the situation you're in. Um, and one of the great things about D&D as a role playing game is it's different than a board game, because in a board game, you only have certain things you can do. It's all limited. And you can only do a move, right? And then draw a card and then do this and that's it. D&D, you can do anything, right. except if you're in a prison and then you really <laughs> can't do anything. Um, well, and you're at, you're at odds here because maybe your players decide, I don't have enough information, so I'm going to do nothing. Or maybe they say, hey, I'm a hero. I should try to break out. Right. But the DM has these like, all this information about like the tasks you're given to do in a particular day and the NPCs. And so the DM sort of wants to probably take longer before they escape so that these things get to establish themselves. You describe right. the NPCs, you create situations, you create some drama, and then they'll get an opportunity to escape. But the players may want to short circuit that because they don't know that other stuff's coming. And so it's like you're putting both entities at odds with the design, right? Yeah, it's, it's for sure. And, you know, for new players, a lot of times what you want to do is, you know, provide information and then provide uh, choices. When when you're a prisoner, it's it's sort of limited, both the information and the choices. Uh, so in order to get information, you can either do the exposition dump as the DM and just explain everything that they've been through in sort of a rote list or uh you know role play it out but if you role play it out you're role playing this miserable experience where they're you know they're getting beaten and shot with poison and threatened constantly <laughs> and and so you know if a player isn't signed up for that doesn't want that sort of experience uh you sort of have to massage things around to get to the part that the players want yeah. and if you have a uh group that loves role-playing and loves this sort of thing, you could spend several sessions doing this. 
you know, slowly building up their equipment and slowly making the connections with the other prisoners or with the guards that they're going to need to get out. And right. that's sort of the the one side of the prison break uh, trope story is is that very carefully planning things out. And that can be a lot of fun. And you could have whole sessions that's all about getting a dagger and a spell component. Right. And that's where I think, you know, the design of this is a little bit of everything and maybe is weaker for that, right? Because you're, right. you're not sure what element to lean into and we're not given the information that a new DM, like if we're going to present all the options, then this probably should be a bigger section with more information and, and more possibilities. But as it is, it's confusing and there's some elements that make it more confusing, right? So one is Appendix A gives you backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in several adventures and we'll see it more. These tie to other chapters is the problem. Yep. So you might have a background that you think might apply here or that you're supposed to do something with fairly soon, but it could be, you know, months of play later that you're going to get to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it can be confusing, including for the DM. So Power Score RPG has a guide for most of these adventures. And this one, one of the things that I like about it is that he provides specific pages for each of the backgrounds so you know when they'll activate. Nice. And you can just make a note as DM like, all right, when I get to page 236, that's when this thing will finally right. do something. Yeah. Um, but the players may not know that and then they may you know, be asking around and mm -hmm. causing this. Yeah, the uh, so the very opening box text tells you, th this is the first thing I go to when, I, when I'm running an adventure or reviewing it or whatever go read with the opening box text because that tells you where the characters are going to start and the information that the characters are going to start with so they can start making their choices and it starts captured by the drow you wouldn't wish this fate upon anyone yet here you are locked in a dark cave the cold weight of metal tight around your throat and wrists you are not alone other prisoners are trapped here with you and then it goes gives you know the background of who is holding you captive uh gives you lots of reasons to dislike this drow priestess uh you know who constantly berates you mocks you uh so on and, and i mean that's the elephants in the room are these 10 npc prisoners who are yeah. with you right yeah. and they are on one hand it's really rich like we get these paragraphs and each one has something interesting about them one is you know where rats we have obviously mentally ill hidden mentally ill unknowingly mentally ill sacrificial do-gooder dumb orc stereotype i mean yeah. it's almost like a list of the things that these days we say we shouldn't put in adventures yeah. um but there's more to that it's not just that uh yeah. but they're complicated and and complicated is good because they can stand out mm -hmm. but it's also an amazing amount of load for the dm to try to impart these folks there is some guidance like that you can hand off some of these npcs to the players to manage, mm -hmm. but it's a lot. And, right. and these NPCs have information to impart while they have all these quirks. Right. Uh, they have goals that may become the character's goals once they escape, like let's go to this particular city together. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a lot that's riding on these NPCs, yet some of them may die. And so it's yeah. a, this is a big load that may, complicates the scene tremendously, right? Yeah. And the, 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 the twist is they're very useful in a lot of ways, 
but you you're not really sure how useful they are not just in you know the immediate escape but in the overall story it doesn't say this character will be super important in chapter seven so you might want to keep them around uh yeah so as as the dm uh it it is useful to hand off npcs to characters to run the combats with but you uh, obviously are always the one in charge of the story elements uh role playing that character providing information making decisions and so on and if you have a bunch of new players you don't necessarily want to hand them two stat blocks each uh to also run in addition to their characters yeah I mean, so what do you think about this design? Like, we, we, you know, we're obviously we both are of the same mind that this is a lot for a new DM or even an experienced DM. But, you know, do you think that D&D should just go like, hey, sometimes we're providing you with tough stuff to run like this and just try to better explain it? Should it break it down into into being a particular experience? Like, what's your thought on this? Yeah, my thought is at lower levels and for products like this, uh, it should be as easy to run for new DMs as possible. And that doesn't mean making it easy to run. It means making it easier to run. Mm -hmm. So I think, like I said at the beginning, there are all the parts in place to make something really fun here. Uh, I think it just needed to do a better job saying, here are three ways you could run this. Mm -hmm. One, immediate breakout the characters are here they've gathered these items uh and all of a sudden there's an attack on the the prison system a guard flips the door open and they have to escape right uh the the obvious route is over this bridge uh that's where they see so run for it a few things attack them as they're running Boom, you're you're done in the first session. You don't have to worry about role playing it out. You can get into the main part of the adventure. Uh, two, make it a mixed thing. Uh, you can role play for here are six encounters that will give the characters all the information they need and the means to escape. Or three, if here are six more encounters that you can put in. And this gives the full role-playing experience of gathering each piece, piece, uh, each piece that they need to escape, a key, a weapon, spell components, lockpick set. Gather it all together. Now you can, now you can do the full right. prison break thing. And so, you know, I don't even think it would take more words. In fact, it might take less words to do it right. that way. Right. Uh, but so you're giving the DM the choice of ways to run it and then they can mix and match and say, well, you know, I do want to do a little bit of role playing. So I'll pick two, but then I'll just jump right into the combat after the first two hours instead of the first two sessions. I agree with that. The other thing is the setting is great, right? Velkin Velve, Velkin Velve is this cool uh, caves along a chasm with rope bridges joining the caves and then joining to hollowed out stalactites, you know, that are suspended from the ceiling. Right. I mean, it, it's super awesome, right? You yeah. are in this drow outpost. I mean, it's just amazing. And 
the, the, you know, what happens is you get like all this information, like all the NPCs, okay, different ways this can play out, breaking out type stuff. And then this, all these locations. Right. And that's where if you break things into scenes, mm -hmm. it would be a lot easier to handle too, right? You could really have it be, um, you know, you've been imprisoned. Now you've got to go on this work detail, meet some of the NPCs, yep. see some of Velkenvelve, then get back, you know, and maybe one of the NPCs tells you, uh, we've been trying to escape for a while. To escape, we would need X, Y, and Z, right? It's just mm -hmm. one way it could happen, but but it right. could be, that would be way easier to run. And, and yeah, you'll hear a lot of organized play DMs rave about the D&D Encounters program. Mm -hmm. And while it tended to be a little bit sort of like, okay, today we're doing this one room or three connected rooms. Yeah. It was so easy to run. Yeah. And I ran these and it was, I agree, like as much as I like complicated stuff and everything, like I, I would just be on my treadmill mm -hmm. reading this one page and then I would think of what to add to it. And it yep. was a joy because it just wasn't hard. It was so yeah. easy to just read over this and go like, oh, cool. And then I would inject all this flavor and, and you mastered it. Whereas I feel like most DMs would read all this material and they're going to skip something the, yeah. the NPCs are going to be dull or the location's going to be dull because doing all of it, right. it's like you'd need a degree in adventure writing and running. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. Just, just off the top of my head, cut it down to six NPCs and assuming six players, if you have five players, five NPCs and the first, the very first scene is, or five scenes is each NP, each NPC is matched with a PC doing a thing. And you get a no more than maybe 15 minute, five minute, possibly of them interacting, getting the information, then they can go back. Now, all the players are listening, so they're get, getting yeah, the information, too. That's cool. But but then, you know, then you can do that in a half hour or less. People aren't waiting forever and it's more re reasonable in the scene. Right. You'd, if you've got a, a bunch of prisoners and you don't send all the six that came in together uh, off to do this thing where they're all together because that's just asking for trouble. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so while it would make more sense to do that as a game master to make the game run more smoothly, it doesn't make sense in the story. What's also neat is then you could say after that one scene, Hey, this is your NPC to run once you escape. True. Yeah. Assuming you liked it. Right. Like, right. And you yeah. can swap if you want, but, but now you've got a, a, you know, something about them. So it would be, make more sense to run them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so this whole, eventually, the characters escape, and they go off into the Underdark, and they have to go one way or the other. And a lot of that's going to depend on what NPCs survived and what they're telling you so that you choose to go towards this town or that town or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's interesting is the adventure is really unclear around levels, and the XP, because this, I think, still sort of had the mentality of XP rather than milestones. Right. So... They have things like you can throw a Vrock in that's like wounded right. and has spent most of its powers. Well, if you do that, you get some XP. If you don't, you don't get that, right? And so it can really vary widely. They're probably second level at the end of this, but it's it's a little uncertain when you read it. Yeah. I mean, th there are essentially three ways to go, right? You can, you can have them acquire tools and weapons. Mm -hmm. You can have this drow guard betray uh, the leader in a bid for his own power. So he mm -hmm. will help you escape or there's a demon attack that creates a distraction. And what I did was I did all three. Yeah. Uh, I, I did the, 
you know, slowly acquire these tools and weapons. And I actually had them come in. What I think I mentioned this before. What I did was rather than saying to the characters, you're starting in a prison. What we did was you have been asked to uh, go into the underdark and pose as prisoners mm. to find someone who was captured by the trial. So the people that ask you to do this help you conceal lockpicks, help you conceal weapons, help you conceal spell components on your person, you know, mm. fake skin, uh, other uh-huh. ways that, that you can get this in. So they started with some resources and they knew that they were gathering information to find out where this person they were supposed to find might be. So that was their goal. So mm-hmm. now they had a goal of what to do. And that goal helped them decide when it was time to move forward. So once yeah. they got the information, Oh, was there this person here? Yeah. She was shipped off uh, three days ago on this caravan heading toward the city. Okay. Now they've got that information. Now they've got this. Now you throw the demon attack in. And while this chaos is happening, they can escape, yeah. you know, have a few demons fly their way just to throw in some battle. But mm-hmm. what that what that did for me was I had it happen on a bridge with all the NPCs and all the PCs and the demons were attacking and any P, uh, NPCs that I didn't want. Rock came down, grabbed eight. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, so that gives you the chaos of it. And now you're dealing, uh, getting rid of NPCs you didn't want. Yeah, and this brings up another thought that I had about this. So, hey, I like that a lot. But um, we have this amazing map and this amazing situation or this location, and yet nothing really digs into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the material as it's presented, it's very easy for a DM to not have battles on rope bridges or between right. stalactites or things like yeah. that, and which is a bit of a shame, right? Like it, it doesn't lean into that it's open but then it forgets to go back and say hey dm make the most of this right right and and really the best way to fix that is what i said earlier which is give three three variations and Mm -hmm. spell out the encounters and all the cool things that can happen if you choose a specific method of handling it yeah Hmm. so uh yeah overall this is one of the best situations I think for for new players or a new DM in terms of a cool, different way of, of handling it, it just needs to be thought through carefully by the DM. DMs, you're almost better off just picking the way you want to handle it. If you know your players and know what they probably prefer, just pick that way and then create scenes within what you're given to just lead them on that path. Yeah, and that's often what I would do too is I would just look at this and decide, here's how I'd prefer this to go. And then just have NPCs point that way or situations push that way so that you're more yep. naturally going to get that. Yep. Yeah. And we, so we go from the Underdark to Ravenloft with the introduction to Curse of Strahd. Uh, so Curse of Strahd is one of those adventures, sort of like uh, many of the adventures we've seen since or from before, where they say start at level three. <laughs> but if you're not going to start at level three, here's something you can do. Uh-huh. And and so for the something you can do in this one, it's a it's a introductory adventure called Death House. But before you get to Death House, which is stuck in an, in an, an appendix, not even appendix A, it's appendix B, uh, you get a really, really, really long introduction. 
which is sort of warranted because you know Ravenloft Strahd has a long history in D D. So as as a brand that operates partially on a love of nostalgia, you wanna you wanna go through and give that background. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't help DMs who want to know how I can run this game right now. Yeah, for me, you know, it's sort of interesting. You have introduction, chapter one, which is kind of also introduction mm-hmm. and a bit of sort of how to run. Chapter two is kind of more introduction, but around Barovia and its people and random encounters and locations. And that's where it gets to me when like, the intro I like a lot. I think it's really useful. It sets the tone. It gives you ideas for like how to run a horror. Mm-hmm. It talks about, it gives good overviews. Like this is one of the best adventures that's saying, here's what all the pieces are supposed to sum up to. Mm-hmm. Um, it does a really good job of reviewing that. But, and, and chapter one does a pretty good job with the fortunes and Taroka deck and all mm-hmm. that. But it's chapter two where I just start getting to like, okay, I'm supposed to learn about all these NPCs and, and I haven't even gotten to running anything yet. And I'm already, you know, on the third section of this adventure, which is chapter two. And and that's where I'd love to have seen this handled a little differently. Yeah. Sort of like we talked about before, like introduce things in phases, right? Don't give me volumes to read. I read a little, do stuff. Read a little, do stuff is way better for me. Yeah. Think, probably for most DMs. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue with this with the introduction to this is that the adventure itself is all over the place. You could go in many different directions. You could do many different things. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if, if you're going to do that to a DM, you want to at least start solidly. So they they're standing yeah. on solid ground and this doesn't really even do that. Right. Um, I, you know, this is where a great integrated introduction adventure opening scene, opening adventure to get you to third level uh, would set that solid base and then let let the players go off from there. And that's what's tricky because even if you use Death House, you still need to, because Death House takes place in Barovia, you still mm. need to get them there. And it recommends using the, the easier creeping fog situation. Right. But it's still a, a sort of complicated, it, it's made complicated the way it's set up. And, yep. and encouraging the DM to read all of this stuff when what would be ideal is, all right, let's tell you a little bit about the overall adventure and then let's run you into a mist scene. Yep. And immediately into a death house like thing, either death house or something else that, mm-hmm. that we can run that. And after that one session, we can go and read more about the rest of the village and whatever. But let's start somewhere because otherwise you're just reading for hours. And, right. and I don't think DMs do that very well. Um, right. it, yeah. It more likely is they read it, forget it, and then they're just paging wildly at the table, which is not what you want to do as yeah. a DM. Yep. So, I mean, what Teos is talking about is some box text to start the, to start the adventure would be you were wandering through the woods and now you're surrounded by mist. Boom. The mist parts, and ahead of you, you see a a large mansion sitting on the outskirts of a town in the distance. In front of the house mansion are two children. Mm-hmm. Right, so that gets you to death house. Death house. Then maybe within the first few rooms of death house, or or an NPC. Oh yes, the town in the distance. That's uh that's Barovia. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the village. Uh, It's run by blank. All right. 
So now the DM is learning as the players are learning, yeah. uh, which which helps. And then you you know you learn a bit more. And I mean they do that with Strad. They introduce Strad in Death House through a note that he sent to the people that mm-hmm. used to own the house about you know, how he's their master and they might have think that they summoned him, but he it does not work for them and he wants nothing to do with them except to see them suffer. Hooray. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's great. That's that's the sort of thing that an intro adventure can do, not just for the players, but for the DM. Yeah. What do you think about Death House has a reputation for being correctly named, let's say. Yeah, um, yeah. TPKs, char- multiple character deaths. Is that good? Is that what we want? I mean, it, it is yeah. Ravenloft, but... Yeah, it. I liked, I love the intro to Death House with the two children uh, who, you know, who are saying there are monsters in the house. Could you, could you come deal with the monsters in the house? And even if players say no with this, with the fog, they have no choice. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a perfect, it's creepy. It's a wonderful way for, for me, it's about 20 rooms too big. Sure. And about one and a half times too powerful <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, when, when they get, there's, there's three levels to the house before with the attic. And then there's a dungeon basement. Yeah. I think the attic or the, the, the house itself has 20 some encounters. And then the basement has about 20, not encounters, but rooms. Um, and to get to someone to third level, you want to go quicker than that. I think. Mm -hmm. So I would have done, you know, 20 upstairs, maybe 10 downstairs. Uh, the main monster downstairs is a, uh, shambling mound which is a cr5 creature so all the characters are level two by the time they meet them hopefully but by the time they meet the shambling mound but yeah that that's going to be a lot of that death in death house yeah it's painful yeah i i tend to think that as much as i grew up on multiple characters and lots of torn character sheets i have binders full of dead characters um i i you know i think these days people want more of a story and less of a grind experience. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think you, you drop down that lethality. Um, unless you want to do something like, you know, Adventurers League, when they when they did um, their AL season for this, they had a rule of if you died, you were returned by the mists mm-hmm. with a um, dark gift and sort of as a creepy way of you are tied to this land now. And I, and I think that's a neat option, too. That, that could have been used here. And, and then death is still yeah. freaky and you don't want it, but it's it's now part of the story rather than, oh, make a new character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, it. it, it is rough. It is rough. There, there's no there's no getting around that. Um, but I mean, my overall thought on this was, if you're going to put this in here anyway, make it, make it part, right? Make it, make it an, a, a vital information providing uh plot driving thing make the reading of the tarot uh, taroka deck part of that first level adventure yeah right just well, just wonder, do it i have two thoughts about that one is the start of level three i wonder if there was a sort of directive at wizards that was saying like hey feed off of the starter set and that initially they were like, hey, our adventures should have this option. And because we sort of see it in Storm King, we see yeah. it in um, 
uh, one of the ones we covered last week as well, you know, had this sort of like, it feels like it should start at third, but has this option. Yeah. Princes of the Apocalypse. Yeah. Right. Princes of the Cop- yeah. Apocalypse. And so maybe they were just like, yeah, we, we need to think of everybody's coming into the starter set. And then at some point, maybe they gave up on that. But yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, the problem though, the starter, even with the starter set, you, when you're come out of that, you're supposed to be fifth, right? Fourth or fifth. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't think it was third. So yeah, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it, if they didn't put Death House in here, I would have said, okay, I, I, I get it. But if you're going to take the page count anyway, and I, it just as easily could have been, oh, we made this adventure. Everyone's starting at third level. Oh, boy. You know, at the last minute, we decided we really should put it first level adventure in. So, okay. You know, poor Chris Perkins has to create an adventure <laughs> in, you know, a week or less, <laughs> you know, with, yeah. with the, this many pages and this much art and you know, it's it's a whole thing all all on its own. Yeah. So, uh, it's you know what I do. So what I do like, right, um, is that this adventure, and and I, maybe I should say this first. So once you get through Death House, or if you're starting at level three, once you get to the village of Barovia, you at some point are going to have the intersection of what you hear from the villagers of Barovia, who are going to tell you, "Hey, the villain is Strahd. Here's what he's trying to do." Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then you're probably going to have a Taroka deck reading. And one thing that's bizarre here is it, it sort of says to the DM earlier, here's how to use the Taroka deck. Here, go ahead and run your reading. And then it says, if you run a reading for the characters in person, use those new results. Which is really weird to me because I've done all this prep. Why would I throw that all away? I would just yeah. tell them what, but okay. Um, so what that does, the combination of talking to the villagers and getting these Taroka readings, which are your goals, then leads the characters to these various locations around the map, mm-hmm. which will play differently each time because the readings are different. Right. And that's both the tough part and the good part. Right? The tough part is you don't know where your characters are going to go next. Mm-hmm. And I've heard from a lot of new DMs that said this was like what what destroyed their campaign was that they weren't prepped to run it. Right. And it was hard for them. And they'd freak out kind of like not knowing how to handle where the D, where the players will go at any given session and doing things like, you know, all right, we wrapped up that piece earlier than I thought, but I need to cancel. We need to now stop playing. I don't know where we're going next. I haven't read that or I don't remember it or, you know. Right. Yeah. And I mean. Yes. And the adventure itself can take care of that almost in a video game sort of way where you have the map and there's two towns on the map and you go to the one town and then, oh, now this opens up on the map. You can't go to here until it opens up, you know, and that's that is a way to handle it that may seem like it's treading on the agency of the players, Mm -hmm. but it's all it also lets you as the dm actually run the game because nothing yeah. treads more on the agency of the players than not playing <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. because you just can't get out in, enough in front of what they're doing one thing that the book does do well is it does tell you the expected levels for different areas what mm-hmm. it then doesn't tell you to do is how to handle when your players want to go to a tough place which a lot of them can be particularly tough i mean even the bone grinder which is like level yeah. four it is a rough level. It's it's a not fight everything at level four. It's like you might be able to squeak in and out at level yeah. four. 
Yeah. And and those are things the characters don't know and the DM isn't told how to explain that. And so it's it's a little it's really easy for PCs to get in over their heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I do like is that no matter where you end up on the map, it's generally a good spot like it's a good time there is something to learn it's interesting well developed there's something to achieve and achieving it will generally feel good and progress you so so even if you go you know to location a or b that works it feels validated yeah i like that about it yeah if you've listened to this show for more than say three episodes you 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 hear a common theme in things that we say one of which is the individual parts of this are great the links between them are tough. Uh, you know, the flow is tough, the, the flow of information. And it just reinforces the point that these books are user manuals. And user manuals are terribly difficult to, run, to write, especially complicated ones. Yeah. Because everyone learns differently. Everyone learns at a different pace. Everyone learns using different senses and, and different modes of of learning so in order to get something across well you really have to put yourself in the the seat of somebody who is using it with absolutely no knowledge ahead of time and think of it in those terms as you're creating it to make sure that you're not leaving out information or making information hard to find that's vital to the use of the the book yeah for sure. It, it's not easy. And and especially when you want to create interesting and different experiences than what has existed before. And this certainly does that because you have this big map to explore and the idea of like a very obvious villain in an <laughs> obvious location. Everybody can see right there up that hill. There's yeah. the big castle. But you also need to know you can't go fight them now. You mm-hmm. must you must find the ways. Yeah, uh, some of which is leveling, but also find these things yep. before you face Strahd. And that makes yeah. it interesting and fun. Yeah. So if you are going to be running this adventure uh, as a new DM or for new players, uh, I would suggest starting with Death House, but tone it down a bit, maybe cut a level or two off the top of Death House uh, mm-hmm. and sprinkle in some of the information that you've learned in the introduction and in chapter one and in chapter two and in chapter three and in <laughs> chapter four and, and put it into death house in ways where ghosts are, t- are talking to people or where you have a book or a document that sort of explains what they're going to be learning later, because that gets you prepped for it. And it gets the players pointed in a direction that you might want them to go by adding details or omitting details as, as you go. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, so anything else on uh, Curse of Strahd for you, Teos? No, I mean, it, it remains one of the more highly rated adventures by DMs. Um, you know, I think the experience overall is one that that's, I mean, certainly it's based on a classic that is highly rated and it can, and the new incarnation continues to be highly rated. For sure. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm going to call that a show. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you out there to our listeners and thank you to our patrons. Um, If you would like to become a patron of the show, we would certainly appreciate that. You can go to patreon.com slash MMP for misdirected Mark productions. Uh, Teos, where can people find your misdirected advice 
on the internet. Yes. My terrible advice can be found on my blog at alphastream.org. And you can subscribe there and get free stuff. You can also find me on Twitter pontificating at alphastream. How about you, Sean? I am not pontificating much anymore at on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can also follow the podcast Twitter handle at MasteringDND. You can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to talk to us directly and give us your thoughts on the show. And, you know, we have people reaching out on Twitter a lot, uh, telling us, giving us some feedback on what they think about our topics. And we certainly do appreciate that. Uh, Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we've been through the Underdark and through Barovia, what are we going to do now? We are going to kill some vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was that Dracula or the Count? Uh, you know, I, I was listening to Thriller recently, and I was badly, yeah. Vincent Price? Yeah. We're going to go kill Vincent Price. Wait. I mean, it was that or imitate the guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>